Okay, if you have your Bibles, could you pull them out to, uh, and open them up to 1 Kings chapter 17? And I'm, I'm very aware that some of you had a catastrophe happen this morning and you could not bring your Bible. I understand how that happens. So you need one, especially if, we are, if you are the, uh, the chairman of our church. I mean, you just need a Bible. I don't even know why that came up. So if you have your Bibles, which he does, look at Bob Briggs. He takes his, do you take your Bible to Africa? You are a godly, godly man. So pull out your Bibles. Um, if you didn't bring one, then there should be one right in front of you. You're going to need your Bibles open this morning. And you're going to need to see the particular wording that God has inspired through His human authors so that we can be encouraged and we can understand how we can navigate through the crises that come into our lives. Years ago, a man by the name of Henry Varley led a prayer service. Now, you, you may or may not have heard of Henry Varley, but you will, I'm sure, have heard of one of the men that was there in that hayfield while Varley was speaking. His name was D.L. Moody. And Varley said during that prayer service these, these words. Now, can you grab hold of these? I know you're opening Bibles, you're getting situated, you're getting your pens out, but just listen to this. Because it's going to allow us to get into this text, this sermon. The world has yet to see what God can do with and for and through and in a man who is fully and wholly consecrated to him. Do you believe that? It's one thing to say that. Do you really believe that? The world has yet to see what God can do with someone who lays on the altar and says, you've got all of me. You know, Hebrews chapter 11, if you read through that, and it's the hall of faith, and you read man after man and woman after woman who did extraordinary things by God's power. They were so filled with faith. You know what it says? It says the world was not worthy of them. It's the world worthy of you. And it's the world worthy of me. I hope not. What can God do to the person and through the person who lays on the altar. Now you might be thinking, well, that's D.L. Moody. The guy did incredible things. Do you know that Moody heard Varley speak and he said to himself, probably what you might be saying to yourself, here it is, could God ever use an ordinary person like me? There's nothing special about me. Moody was a shoe salesman. He was poorly educated, but one time he saw, not heard, he saw and heard Charles Spurgeon, who was, he had come over from England, speak and preach. And when he was listening and watching Spurgeon preach, he saw the preacher no longer. I mean, it's like the preacher receded into the background and what came to the foreground was the God who was actually doing the work of ministry. He said it was bizarre. It was amazing. Spurgeon, as great as he is, faded into the background and I saw God work. And the words of Varley came roaring back like a flame into his heart. He writes, if God could use Mr. Spurgeon... Why should he not use the rest of us? And why should we not all lay ourselves at the master's feet and say to him, send me, use me? When Moody heeded the call of God to enter into ministry and God began to do extraordinary things through his ordinary life, thousands and thousands of people 
came to faith across America, across Britain, because God moved a call in Moody's heart. And he said, can you use an ordinary person like me? And God said, yes. Will you lay on the altar? Like Samuel before him and Isaiah after him, Elijah also responded to that call. And he said, God, here I am. Lord, use me. And God did extraordinary things through his life. Listen, James says Elijah was nothing out of the ordinary. He was a man like us. He had a nature like us. Friends, do you think you're an ordinary person? I hope so. Some of you might not. I hope you do. Because God says, I've chosen what is low and despised in the world so that no human being might boast in my presence. Are you ready to respond to God's call and say to him, send me, use me? Well, if you are, God's going to train you and he's got great plans for your life and he's going to help you grow in your faith. And you will inevitably, listen, you will inevitably enter a crisis of your belief. And here's when Elijah did. Verse 17, after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house became ill And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. Here's the crisis. And it starts with this. Look, here's the particular words of God. You've got to see them. Look at verse 17. After this. Well, what does that mean? Well, student of the Bible, you've got to pause. And you've got to start going backwards in the text. What is is this after? Well, what it's after is this. Elijah had come to a woman, a widow, whose husband had died, obviously, who had one little boy, and she was gathering sticks to cook her last little flour and oil to make one more cake of bread, and then she was planning on them dying. She didn't want to die. There just was no food. The drought, the famine was so severe. And here comes Elijah meeting her at the gate, And he called her to obey and to trust God. And unbelievably, she did. And God moved in this woman's life. Jesus says later, there were widows in Israel. There were widows everywhere. But God sent Elijah to this particular one. God was blessing this widow. And every day she would look in that jar of oil and that jar of flour and And it wasn't empty. There was, again, more ingredients. We've got somebody in our church one year, a few years ago, who they were flat out of money. They had no money. It was winter. It was very, very cold winter a couple years ago. And they told us their oil furnace, the oil tank, wasn't reading on the dipstick anymore. There was, no, there was no oil in there, yet their furnace kept working and they kept praying, Lord, we don't have the money for oil. I don't know what we're going to do. And every day they would turn their furnace up a little bit more if it was cold and it kept working. Week after week, it was amazing. Listen, God does miraculous things. And never, never did that jar of oil or, or jar of flour run out. They had bread. Everybody else around them was in famine. But God provided faithfully. They're going to live. Can you imagine? Now, listen, get into the widow's life. They were about to die, her and her son. 
And here comes Elijah and there's hope restored. My son has a future. We're going to live. And then all of a sudden her son gets sick worse and worse. And her son finally dies and her hope was shattered. Look what the text says. There was no breath left in him. There's nothing vague here. He wasn't in a coma. He had died. Listen, it's better to never hope than to have hope restored and crushed. You know that. Some of you have been through this. That's the worst agony. And it's her pain. Can you imagine, moms especially, dads, there's something our wives latch onto with their hearts, with their children, that we don't always fully get. A mother's heart's different than a father's. One of the worst dreams that I have, and it happens every once in a while, is that one of my kids are dying, and I can't save them. My wife dreams that much more frequently than I do. Can you imagine this mom? Come on, ladies, get into her life. Her son, her only son, her world had shrunk to this little boy. He was a little boy. He's, she's carrying him. And she hands him to Elijah in a minute, and he carries the boy. She's not, this isn't a man. This isn't a full-grown teen. This is a little boy. And her world had shrunk to this little boy, and he's getting worse and worse. Can you imagine the anxiety that is growing as his illness grows worse? And then finally, that horrible moment comes when he exhales and his chest doesn't move again. You know, my dad died years ago. I wasn't there. My brother John was. And he was by his bed when dad died and he describes to me, he described to me, you could hear when he would exhale that rattling. You knew when it was coming to the end and your eyes, your eyes are transfixed on the chest. You can't see breath coming in out, but you can see the chest move up and down. And my eyes, Tim, they were fixed on his chest. And finally, the air came out and his chest didn't move. And it was an eerie moment when finally reality hit. Dad is no longer on this world. Can you feel... The rupture in this mom's heart. The moment that her boy breathed his last. Friends, have you experienced a crisis in your life? Maybe, maybe it was the death of somebody that you loved. Maybe it was a day that the boss told you that you're being laid off. Maybe it was that time where you put all your marbles in this job. You took a new job and then it didn't work out the way you thought it would. What am I going to do now? Did you have to hear those terrifying words from your parents that they're getting a divorce? I mean, that's traumatic. That's a crisis. Maybe you've experienced the anxiety of your child just clearly turning away from your Christian faith. Whatever it was, crises come in all shapes and sizes and they allow, they're allowed in our lives by God and they've got a purpose. You know, the word crisis comes from a Latin word that means to decide. Now think through this. Shift your minds into gear with me. 
See, a crisis is a difficult experience. It's a, it's a crossroads. It's an intersection where it presents options. A crisis means you've got to choose. You've got to decide one way or the other. You're familiar with crisis care. You're familiar with a medical term, critical condition. It means that the person has come to a point in their, in their sickness where they either can turn towards death or turn towards life. It's critical. It's a crisis. It's an intersection section. But you go to the New Testament and you see the word crisis with a K and it means judgment. It means if you extrapolate it, it means sifting. It's a difficult experience. It's an intersection in life. And friends, we've got to decide and that choice is sifting us whether we've got real faith or inadequate faith. And when the crisis comes, now write this down, put this in your mind. If you're not writing it, here we go, because you're coming into a crisis at some point. You may be in one now. When that crisis comes, what you decide to do will demonstrate what you believe. Did you hear that? When that comes, what you decide to do demonstrates what you believe. Here's what Henry Blackaby of Experiencing God says. How you respond to a crisis will determine whether you go on to be involved with God in something God-sized that only He can do or whether you will continue to go your own way and miss what God has purposed for your life. And this is exactly what we are about to see as we look at the response of the mother and the prophet. Friends, do you not agree with me? We don't like to say this. We don't even like to admit it, but it's true nonetheless. We just don't walk close to God when we're in times of prosperity. It is so rare that somebody grows in their spiritual walk when life is easy. It's in the crisis, it's in the trial that we cling to him, that we depend on him. Yes, God brings them, and sometimes God authors them, but sometimes he allows them to come into our life because it's, it's got a redemptive purpose as it moves you closer to Christ. You see, servants of Christ, we're never granted. We're not promised an easy life. We don't have a prosperity gospel. We've got the gospel of grace. And in my experience, the deepest, deepest, most horrific grief that a person could ever experience is the grief of a parent who has lost their child. It's unlike any other mourning I've ever seen. I've done a lot of funerals. I hate them. I know they're good opportunities for Christ. I know that, but they are painful. And I've never seen grief like a mother in particular whose child has died. And it seems apparent that Elijah hears her loud wail of despair, goes to her room and finds her cradling the body of her dead son. And when he enters that room, look what he says, verse 18, or here, look what she says. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? Now get the picture. She's holding her dead son against her chest. Is she crying? Is she sobbing? And she says, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. Listen, this isn't complicated. She's saying it's your fault. 
Listen, I know she's crying. I know she's weeping, but I think she's probably yelling. Because this is accusatory tone. Elijah, what did I do to you? How have I harmed you? I know God responds to your prayers. You're a man of God. That's why I called you that, oh man of God. I know that your God is with you and somehow, somehow your God who is with you because you're a man of God has seen my sin and killed my boy. Maybe it's her former worship of Baal. She is in Zarephath and Baal was their God. Maybe she says God finally took notice like somebody who has a warrant out for their arrest and makes it for years before they finally get caught. Maybe God finally caught me. But it's because you're in my life, you brought God with you. We don't know what her sin was and the Bible protects her modesty. But it was a crisis. And when a crisis occurs, so many of us point to it must be because I'm a sinner. And all of a sudden we forget that God's grace permeates. And God loved us while we were yet his enemies. And there is no equal sign between sin and crises all the time. Isn't it common that when a child wants nothing to do with God and they grow up making immoral choices, don't parents always examine, what did I do wrong? What did we not do right? What should we have done? Because somehow in our minds, it's an equal sign between how our parenting goes and how our children turn out. Yes, it's incredibly influential, but there is not an equal sign. And if you've got pride in your heart and a crisis comes in your life, you're going to say, what did I do to deserve this? I try to do what's right. I'm certainly better than that person. And they're not going through this. Why is my life so hard, God? That's what pride does. See, pride accuses God of injustice and humility clings to his grace. Pride claims innocence. Humility knows you're worse sinner than you will ever know. Yet God's grace is greater than you could ever imagine. That's humility. And pride sees a harsh God in the crisis. And humility sees a God who is graciously at work in us even when the pain seems unbearable. See, what's happening in this, in this mother's heart is this. And it's a picture of agrarian society. See, in those ancient societies where agriculture was your way of life, in order to take that coveted grain that's growing in your fields and make it into life-preserving bread, first you've got to cut down the stalks. And when you do, they bound them together into sheaves and they piled them on carts and they took them to a threshing floor. And a threshing floor was outside. It was an inside a barn. And somebody would be taking a, a tool like a pitchfork and they would be throwing the sheaves into the air to let the chaff, the useless 
part blow away in the wind while the heavier husks would fall to the ground. And then they would take this crude cart that was usually on rollers or cylinders that had bits of metal and stone attached to it. And they would pull it with an oxen around and around and around, crushing the, the grain, the husk, so that the husk would break apart. And the coveted grain inside would come out. Friends, that sled was called the tribulum. And it's the word in the New Testament for tribulation. That's what a crisis is. Listen, you're in a crisis and then you're in a tribulation. And what God is doing in your life is breaking apart your heart so that he can extract his faith and make you more like Christ and blow away the impurities. And while crises feel like they're tearing us to pieces, in reality, they're being used by God. You know, Peter gets at this. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Rejoice. Rejoice in the crisis. How? Why? Because you should be glad when his glory is revealed. Well, listen, this crisis is tearing this widow's heart apart. Yet God's grace was at work and it's going to come through his servant, Elijah. He asks for the body of her boy and she hands it to him. Listen, you might be in your crisis right now. If not now, I think you will be. I will be. Right now is when you prepare for it. But you will, you may be in a crisis now and you may not, you might not have the strength to believe in God's goodness. Listen, there's people in this church in our family that have been through horrific, horrific crises. They can't even come into church. They'll come in and worship will start and they leave. It's too painful. I understand that. I don't chastise them for that. I usually try to go out and catch them and pray for them. It's painful. You may not have the strength in your faith to believe in God's goodness in the midst of that crisis. But listen, here's what you can do. Can you hand that crisis to a friend, a godly friend who has the faith? When are we going to learn to be a family that quits trying to handle everything in our own? I had a conversation with a man last night. I knew, I just sensed he was struggling in sin. I said, how are you doing? He goes, oh, pretty good. I said, no, you're not. He goes, oh, you're right. I'm, I'm really struggling. It's like temptation has just overwhelmed me. I don't understand this. I said, why didn't you call? Temptation builds. It doesn't come like that very often. You knew it. You felt it. You're making plans. That's when you call. Call me. I've told you to do that. Call me and I will pray with you and I can guarantee you almost every time you're going to find the strength to overcome it. But you've got to call. Can you hand that crisis to a friend and just tell him I don't have the strength? Would you take it to God? If you have a godly friend, they will. And Elijah did. Give me your son, verse 19. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged. And he laid him on his own bed. Now listen, I'm going to give you three ways from Elijah's life that we need to learn to handle a crisis. 
Listen, the widow's not doing well. Her faith is too weak. I understand that. There's no judgment that God levels at her. He understands that. He strengthens her faith through his servant. But Elijah shows how you respond. First, he took it to God in prayer. He didn't defend himself. She says, this is your fault. He didn't say a thing. He never defended himself. He says, I won't defend myself. My God will defend me. But I will move towards you and help. And he simply asked for the boy's body and he went and he cried to the Lord. The word means he declared. He cried to the Lord. He's declaring truth. You're going to see this in a minute. He's declaring truth to the Lord in his prayer. How often do we get in a crisis and we declare non-truth to God? God, you're unfair. God, this isn't right. This is more than I can handle. That's untruth. He didn't do that. Elijah declared truth to God. Can't you see the passion? And he like, listen, he's not a stoic man. Yeah, he doesn't speak much. All through his life, you're going to see a man that thinks before he speaks. Processes almost always, not always, almost always before he acts. But he's not stoic. He feels. He cries to the Lord. He's affected by this crisis. And even as his heart was being torn by the tribulation of this crisis, his first response was to find his way to the prayer chamber where he spent so much time with God and bring the matter to the Lord. Listen, friends, if you will learn to talk to God before you talk to anybody when you fall into a crisis, you will almost always pass the test. Don't get on Facebook before you get with God. Don't complain to your friends before you've poured out your heart to God. Don't even complain to your family before God has had a chance to restore your mind with right thinking. Cry out to God before you cry out to anybody. Learn that discipline. If we would do that, we would almost always pass this test. That is so funny when that happens. Because I know you feel terrible for that. And rightfully you should. <laughs> I'm kidding. That was a joke. Listen, let's get back into this first response. Take it to God in prayer. Here's the second response. Pray with the intimacy and familiarity of your God. That's what Elijah does. Oh, Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Listen, you got to see this. This is a statement. This is a question, rather. It's not a statement. He's not accusing God of wrongdoing. He's not asking God why. Don't ask God why. You will rarely ever receive an answer. He doesn't even concern himself with telling you why. That's not the point. Even knowing why doesn't help the pain. It's, 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 will you trust me? Will you lean on me? Will you cling to me? Will you pass the test? Because Satan brings trials to get you to prove your faith is inadequate and untrue. God brings trials to make your faith pass the test. He gives a question, not a statement. 
He's discerning his prayer. Listen, this is Elijah discerning through his prayer things like this. Lord, is this really your plan for this widow? It doesn't seem to me that this fits with who you are and what you've been doing in her life. It doesn't make sense. It's not adding up. Now, how did he know this? And here's the key. He's walked with God so closely that he knows is God's handiwork. That is so often not our case, which is why we fail the crises. He knows his God. How do I know that? Well, look what he says. Oh, Lord, my God, and there's a world of redemptive meaning. Lord, all caps. When you see Lord with all capital letters, it's Yahweh. And Yahweh is the promise-keeping, personal, covenantal name of God. And Elijah's crying out, Yahweh, I know you. You are good. You honor your servants. You keep your promises. Her, her son's death, it doesn't fit what you've said to me. You've sent me here to bless her. You've sent me here to show her to trust you and that you will sustain her life. This is not your handiwork. This is not your plan. And he knows that Yahweh upholds the widow. He knows because Yahweh promised to do this in the Old Testament. He will not afflict her life. He will uphold her cause. He will defend her. And he pleads to God. He, are, he presents his arguments to God. God, look, she's been faithful. I've been sojourning with her. She is your servant. He pleads her case. And then he addresses God with a second title. It's not like the first one. It's Yahweh the first. And then my God is Elohim. Elohim is the name of God that speaks of his power as the creator, the sovereign ruler over all, the one who controls life and death. He's saying, Elohim, you hold the power to bring this, this boy back to life. He's pleading the boy's case. He's presenting his arguments before the Lord. Friends, listen to me. Look at, look at me. This is faith filled praying that knows your God so intimately that you can discern his hand. Do you see that word, my? It's a possessive term. It's not just Yahweh and Elohim. Look what he says, oh, Yahweh, my Elohim. I know you. I serve you. I trust you. I love you. I don't think this is your hand or your final plan. Friends, this is powerful. This is intimate. This is faith-filled prayer. It's the way that God's servants pray when a crisis comes against them. And he concludes by faith. This is not God's final plan for the widow. And you might be saying to me, Tim, how do you know that he believed that? How do you know he concluded with that? Listen, the answer stumped me all week, literally until yesterday. When I remembered and recalled what James says, your faith is demonstrated in your actions. What does Elijah do will tell you what he believed. And it leads us to the third response. Not only bring it to the Lord in prayer, not only know your God with deep, intimate familiarity, but listen, ask God to do big things that will bring him, not you, glory. 
Look what Elijah does, verse 21. This is what he believes is put into action. This is faith demonstrated. Then he stretched himself upon the child three times. Listen, if he really believed this was God's final plan, he wouldn't do this. Now, we come to an impossible situation, and we do the thing that we're supposed to do, the obligatory prayer, but a lot of times we really don't think God's going to work. We know he can. We really don't think he will. Elijah knew he could, that's Elohim, and then he knew God will, that's Yahweh. And he prays to the Lord again, O Yahweh, my Elohim, let this child's life come into him again. Now let me pause and take a brief time out and look at me for a second, if you would. Probably this has been in the top three most difficult sermons I've ever put together. I literally finished the sermon 6.45 last night. I don't know if you know church starts at 6.30. You know why this was so hard? Because we've got people in our church that have lost children. This is painful. This is hard. God, why didn't you do that for me? I believed. I prayed. My heart broke. And I need to remind you that it has never, ever been God's normal operation, normal operation to bring the dead back to life. It happened infrequently. And listen, it never happened before this incident. Nowhere in Scripture is there a precedence for this. Elijah couldn't, like an attorney, appeal to another case and present his arguments to God claiming precedence. It's his intimate faith and his knowledge of God in this particular instance. My Yahweh and my Elohim, I know you can and I believe you will because this doesn't seem like your plan. And it moves him to God to pray a God-sized request that only God can answer. If you could do it, God, you'll... Or rather, if I could do it, Elijah must have thought, God will get no credit. If the world can accomplish it, God gets no glory. And Elijah didn't pray half-heartedly. Look at the text. He threw himself on the boy's body, stretched himself head to toe, right on the body. Listen, no priest did this. This was illegal. Priests were forbidden to touch the dead. What he did was he broke the law that the priests had written. The priests believed in But he said, I don't think this is God's final plan. I don't believe it is. I'm going to put my faith into action and I'm going to pray. Not once. He had to do it three times because faith doesn't give up at the first no. He knew what Jeremiah one day would write. It is you who has made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. See, Elijah took it to God in prayer when the crisis hit. And he discerned through the crisis with his incredibly intimate, familiar knowledge of God whom he walked closely with. And after he discerned it, he asked God to do something that only he could for his own glory. And we see an incredible result. And the Lord listened, verse 22, to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came into him again and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. Do you remember where Elijah is? 
Do you remember that he's in the heartland of the false god Baal that had ensnared Israel? And in that religion, the worship of Baal, every year, every year during the dry season, they believed that their god Baal died at the hands of battle with the death god Mot, and that he fell down into the underworld, the netherworld. And that he laid there dead during the rainy season because Baal's the weather god, they believed. He brought the rains. And while he was dead in the netherworld, the dry season came. And then his wife, his consort, Annette, would go down into the netherworld, revive him, and bring him back up into the land of living just in time to bring the rainy season. That's what they believed. But they're in a drought that has so long exceeded the rainy season. God is defeating Baal, even in his own heartland. And Baal, supposedly, who has the power to bring life, could not do a thing for this boy. God can, and to God be the glory for the great things he has done. You know, I've been telling you about George Mueller. He often had crises come into his life. And he always, always did what Elijah did, took them to the Lord in prayer, discerned through him. You ought to read his autobiography. He writes lists, pros and cons, what God is doing in this crisis. He knew his God, and it filled his prayers with faith. And then he would ask God to do something that was not humanly possible so that God would get the glory. He was so jealous for his glory. Well, one morning in the orphan house, he brought all the orphans to the table and they sat at the table before bowls and cups that were empty. There was no food. They had no food. And yet Mueller still directed the children to come and he led them in prayer and he thanked God for their daily bread that he would provide. And the moment he said, Amen, a knock came to the door. It was the baker. He says, Mr. Mueller, I couldn't sleep last night. Somehow I felt you didn't have bread for breakfast, so I got up at 2 a.m. and baked bread for your orphans. And as soon as he delivered the bread, another knock came to the door, and it was the milkman whose truck cart broke down. And he says, I've got to fix my cart, and I've got to get the milk off of it. Can I just give it to you so I can fix my cart? That's a true story. That's how faithful God is. God who is sovereign, God who is Yahweh, is faithful to his covenantal people. And when they trust him to do something only he can, he will bring his name, fame, through your life. See, a crisis is an opportunity for the glory of God to be displayed to the world. And when God does perform a miracle, it is to confirm always. Listen, this is true from the Old to the New Testament. It is always to confirm both his word as true and his servant as his. And look what happens in verse 24. The woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God. And now I know that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. That's what miracles do. Now she knows Elijah is sent by God, and now she knows God's word he has declared to her is true. But there is one brief and final truth that I need to give you, and we're going to see it unfold in the weeks ahead. 
This crisis wasn't just about this widow. In fact, friends, listen. Listen, it's more about Elijah. Remember, I've been telling you that God prepares you today in these trials for his assignments tomorrow. And if you obey him and trust today, your faith will strengthen and do bigger things for God tomorrow. God's about to send Elijah back to Israel. He's inside an entire right now. He's in the land of Phoenicia along the Mediterranean coast. He's about to send Elijah back to the nation of Israel. Listen, listen to me. The nation of Israel, God's daughter, is spiritually dead. Baal didn't just come into Israel to fit comfortably alongside the worship of Jehovah. Ahab and Jezebel killed the prophets of Jehovah to replace them with the prophets of Baal and Asherah. They were dead. They weren't sick. They weren't in a swoon. They weren't in a coma spiritually. They were dead. And God is working through Elijah's faith. He sent a crisis, a threshing cart, to purify, to break apart Elijah's faith, to extract the purity of his faith so that he could go back to Israel and confront an entire dead nation with a faith that God can, re can revive them again and bring his life back to them. Friends, that's what this is about. What God allows in your life today is preparing you for his assignments tomorrow. If you're going to serve God, let him put you into advanced training because he's got big things, extraordinary things for you to do through ordinary persons like us that will bring fame and glory to his name. But when that crisis hits, you've got to take it to God in prayer before you go anywhere else. And you've got to discern through the crisis with the truth of the word of God, knowing God so deeply because you've walked with him so closely. And then ask him to do what only he can do and bring glory to his name. What choice you make in the intersection of a crisis will always reveal the quality of your faith. Will you trust him? Your Yahweh? your covenantal friend, your Elohim, your powerful creator, your sovereign ruler, will you trust him and let him walk you through the crisis into his glory? That's Elijah. Lord, thank you for Elijah. Lord, his life is so extraordinary, though he was so ordinary. We're going to see just how ordinary he is. Right now, he feels extraordinary. Lord, he is like us. We're about to see his struggles. But Lord, his faith was so alive. Would you help our faith to live? Lord, for my friends who are going through and have been in crises, Lord, would you give them the strength? Even if they can't trust you right now, would you let them at least hand this crisis to a friend? who will bring it before you in prayer. And may their hearts follow quickly. And call on you, God. Bring that crisis, that matter that is too great for them. Bring it to you. And Lord, let them discern, let us discern through these crises, Lord, 
with our knowledge of you, as we walk closely with you, as we know you through your word. Let us discern through each one of these trials to detect and discern your hand. And then let us have the faith to ask you to do things that only you can do to bring yourself glory. Lord, when we come to these intersections and we have to make a decision, may our faith demonstrate itself in action and trust. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.